Just a quick heads up, a little warning going into before this episode begins. There may be a little bit of salty language, um, including, I think, one F-bomb. So if you have young children or if you have a sensitive ear of your own or you don't want to have to explain what certain words mean, like the F-bomb, because you just don't have the time and you're not ready to have that conversation yet. You may want to skip this episode, or you may want to listen to it in advance before you let young and young and or impressionable people listen to the episode. Just a fair warning, a little bit of salty language early on in this episode and a couple of spots throughout. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to I Have So Many Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane interrogatories. I am he who is B, your host, Brian Watson, and let me tell you, it is how buoyant it is, or how buoyant I feel, having the financial security from gainful employment. It's a wonderful feeling. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps bring in new listeners as I work toward establishing my cult of personality, which I have mentioned many, many times, is the sole purpose for this endeavor. Here's how you can get in touch with the show. Email address is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is at IHaveSoManyPod or just look up I Have So Many Questions Podcast on the search function of your Twitter app. Facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. There's an Instagram page, but I don't really know why. The show is hosted on anchor.fm and through their mobile app, streaming on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Radio Public, and of course iTunes and Apple Podcasts or whatever subsidiaries they're splitting all that stuff off of as they discontinue iTunes. It has been a little bit since the uh, last episode, I think maybe almost a month, Eh, three weeks maybe. This is episode 16. If you listened to episode 15 and judging by the download count, not many of you did. So as a podcast topic, economics, or at least me ranting about Trump economics, not much of a crowd pleaser. The incel, the incel episode, though, crowd pleaser. I'm going to talk about a couple of different topics in this one, kind of a couple of things. I will say that I made arrangements uh, in the very near future to have the first guest on this show. And amazingly, surprisingly, I didn't have to bribe them or pay them or offer gratuities in return for them being on the show and in the very near future we're going to have a guest on the show and it'll be i'm really looking forward to it they even had suggestions about the topics to cover so i'm really looking forward to that but that's in the near future this weekend i uh, went and saw a couple movies on saturday i finally took my 13 year old son to go see hobbs and shaw which i had been promising to do with him since i showed him the trailer before the movie came out six weeks ago showed him the trailer and his eyes got all big and he's like oh we've got to totally go see that i'm like yeah you're right we do and unfortunately scheduling just it just didn't work out between my wife's work and the kids being in school and 
my daughter didn't want to go see it. She's nine, but she can't stay up late by herself while the wife goes to bed because she's got to go to work and all this kind of stuff. It just didn't work out. Finally went and saw Hobbs and Shaw on Saturday and much better than I thought it would be. Now, granted, I've not seen, I've not seen any of the other Fast and Furious movies. I think I saw the first one when it came out back in, what was that? 2001. And it was okay. Um, I'm not a big Paul Walker fan and I have a, Unless, unless the words coming out of his mouth is, are, I am Groot, I have no desire to see anything with Vin Diesel in it. I've seen all three Riddick movies. Honestly, he's the worst part of them, or the least, not the worst part, the least interesting part of them. The man can't act. He makes Marky Mark look like a thespian. I just, I can't, I can't do Vin Diesel. And if I can't do Vin Diesel, I'm not going to do the Fast and Furious movies. But I saw Hobbs and Shaw and I was pleasantly surprised. It was much better than I thought it would be, mostly due to The Rock. That type of movie is where The Rock really shines. He gets to be, he gets to do the action hero thing, but he also is very funny. The Rock has a lot of charisma and really good comic timing. I've been watching The Rock since he was a professional wrestler back in the late 90s. And I drove, I used to drive my wife nuts this before we had kids. I'd watch Raw, WWE Raw every Monday night. This was when it was The Rock and Triple H and Stone Cold and The Undertaker and they were at their peak. This was after they had crushed WCW in the Monday Night Wars. But uh, I've always loved The Rock. And some movies I love him in and some movies, I you know, I have no desire to see San Andreas. I have no desire to see the, what, that one movie where he's got the artificial leg skyscraper. The Rock doesn't do serious, okay? You can't put him in an exclusively dramatic role. It just doesn't work. But in Hobbs and Shaw, where you give him, you allow him to be charismatic, you allow him to be funny, and he's very funny in the movie. He's way better than Jason Statham. It's clear that Statham is doing the straight man and that that pairing, because Statham just doesn't have the charisma. He just doesn't. But The Rock is the 21st century Schwarzenegger in a lot of ways, but much better than I thought it'd be. And then on Sunday, I super totally geeked out on Sunday, and I posted this on Twitter. I went and saw... My wife was at work. My kids were with my parents. And I went and saw a screening of the 40th anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Or as it's more commonly known, the boring one. This is the first Star Trek feature film made in 79, directed by acclaimed director Robert Wise. This is the one where everybody's in the pastel uniforms and it's way too long, but it still made $100 million. And because of that, it uh, kicked off the the Star Trek franchises that came after that. And I've seen the motion picture dozens of times. Um, I've got it on Blu-ray. I remember when ABC showed it on think on the Sunday night movie, and they added scenes into it. But I've seen the movie dozens of times, but I've never seen it in a theater. The uh, I think it's Fathom Events. They've been doing these re-releases, these one night, two night only re-releases. And I'll say this, I went to see this movie and there was only two, two showing times in the theater on Sunday. And I go to the one o'clock showing and there's nobody there. There's maybe, there's less, there's gotta be maybe 10 people in the entire theater. So, but you think for a 40th anniversary release, you're only showing it two day for two days and you're only showing it at two times in those two days. You think it'd be, you'd get a little more of an audience. Nope. 10 people total. Which was fine with me. I don't like sitting next to people in movies. Unless it's people that are with me. 
but I went and saw it and I'd never seen it in a theater before. And I will say this, and they've done Fathom Events has done re-releases of, of multiple movies over the uh, the last couple of years. Last year, I think they did a re-release of Superman, the movie with Christopher Reeve because it was the 40th anniversary. Wanted to go see that. Didn't happen. Year before, it was the 30th, 35th anniversary re-release of The Wrath of Khan. Wanted to go to that. Didn't happen. This year, they're doing all kinds of different ones. Um, there's Meet Me in St. Louis with Judy Garland. There's the 45th anniversary release of the godfather part two i think next month they're doing the 35th anniversary release of ghostbusters which i'm going to try to get the kids to go see because my daughter loves ghostbusters i'm pretty sure she stole my blu-ray copy of that movie and i'll say this that print looked brand spanking new they must have remastered it or something they must have done something to that movie because it looked like it came from from a Blu-ray. And it's also entirely possible maybe it did come from a Blu-ray. With digital theater technology these days, who knows? Maybe they just, instead of using film, they use DVDs for this type of thing. But if that's the case, the projector was spectacular because that movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture is a 70 mil, is shot on, was shot on 70 millimeter film. That's the type of film that they use in... Um, spaghetti westerns in the 60s or uh, david lean movies like bridge on the river kwai or lawrence of arabia um, 70 millimeter makes everything look bigger on the 30 foot screen it's the type of film that is in solely intended for big screens i think imax i don't think they use 70 millimeter but they use something comparable Nolan, Christopher Nolan i believe likes to use 70 millimeter in some parts of his movies i think or he shoots them in 70 millimeter or something like that star trek the motion picture was shot in 70 millimeter film which um, makes it intended for a 30 foot movie theater screen i'm watching the movie and it's a feast for the eyes i mean the one thing it's a slow movie but visually speaking except for some of the interior set design which and the costumes which are 70 ish very very it's got a the costumes and some of the sets have a very 70s feel to them in the way they're designed in the palette color especially in the color palette but the enterprise itself is gorgeous it's just an immaculate spectacular model and the visual effects in the movie are just wonderful and on a 30 foot screen and 70 millimeter and fully restored and remastered um it was just it was it was a, it was a visual feast. It really was, um, and I totally super geeked out on it. And I I don't I've I've said this for years. I don't understand why they don't re-release a lot of these movies. I can remember in the mid to late nineties they did a twentieth anniversary re-release of the Star Wars original tri trilogy. This is before the prequels started. I think it was in ninety seven. I remember going to see all three of those. And I thought they should do this with a whole bunch of other movies. And they're starting to do that a little bit. But I think um, I think these one and two night event type of things, I think, is might not be the best way to go. Give it a week. You know, you want to get the most bang for your buck, give it a week. Release it for a week and see what happens. Super totally geeked out on that, and which I don't get to do very often.
Speaking of movies, in a roundabout way, last week was the 18th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, and I'm not going to rehash 9-11 here. If you're listening to this podcast, you're sentient enough to know uh, about 9-11. And if you don't know about 9-11, just Google it. Find out all kinds of things. Everything you need to know about 9-11, you'll find on Google. Last week was the 18th anniversary of 9-11, and I was scrolling through my Facebook memories last year, and I did an episode about this uh, last year on the 17th anniversary of 9-11, asking the question last year, the question I asked was, which was the more historically significant event, 9-11 or Pearl Harbor? Um, Because they are paired together, linked in a lot of ways in the American consciousness. I've heard it referred to over the years as the 21st century version of Pearl Harbor in terms of its scale. And scale usually means body count. It's compared to Pearl Harbor. It's surpassed Pearl Harbor, I believe. But last year I asked, which was the more historically significant event? which had the greater historical ramifications, Pearl Harbor or 9-11. And I argued last year that it was Pearl Harbor that was the more historically significant event, that the historical ramifications of that event of Pearl Harbor were far greater than 9-11. And I would recommend going back and listening to that episode. I'm going through my Facebook memories and I come across that memory and I put that question out there on Facebook before I did an episode about it. Last week I wondered... You think about Pearl Harbor, you think about, at a certain point, the uh, the movies made about Pearl Harbor. And I'm not talking about the horrible Michael Bay movie with Ben Affleck in it, which had its moments. The attack itself in that movie is very good and very well made. Everything else is shit. But there have been tons of Pearl Harbor movies made. There were They were making Pearl Harbor movies within... Two decades of the war being over. I think uh, From Here to Eternity, I think it was made in 1962, which was just 21 years after the bombing. Um, there was In Harm's Way. There was Torah, Torah, Torah. Um, I'm sure there are a couple other movies that I just can't think of, but they were all about Pearl Harbor. Several of them have been great movies. Torah, Torah, Torah is considered like the definitive Um Pearl Harbor movie, and I think it was made in 68, 67, 68, maybe 69. But there have been lots of movies about Pearl Harbor, and they were made very, relatively speaking, very close after the attack. And I was wondering, why has it been 18 years since 9-11? Why hasn't there been a great movie about 9-11? There have been a couple of good movies. I don't know if they qualify as great. I've seen United 93 and United 93 is a very good movie, directed by Paul Greengrass, who did three out of the four Bourne films. He did three out of the four Bourne films that had Matt Damon in them. I think he did the second, third, and fourth Matt Damon, Jason Bourne movies. Anyway, he did a version of United... He did a United 93, which is a very good movie. But I don't know if it falls under the category of great movie. And then I went and looked it up in my source of sources, Wikipedia... There haven't, there hasn't been any real attempt to make movies about 9-11. There have been movies that have 
used 9-11 as a plot point. There was that Tom Hanks movie with Sandra Bullock where special needs child, I think he might have been on the spectrum disorder, who Tom Hanks is in the World Trade Center. He dies during the attack on the World Trade Center and the movie kind of takes off from there a couple of years later. It's like a mystery involving the kid and Max von Sydow and stuff like that. There's a movie with Robert pa- Robert Pattinson, who's going to be Batman here in a couple of years. Robert Pattinson, there was a movie about him where he dies in the 9-11 attack at the end of the movie. Although the way I understand it and reading the Wikipedia entry, 9-11 was kind of wedged in there at the end. It didn't really serve a purpose. It was just basically a plot point. There have been movies where 9-11 has been a plot point, but there haven't been new movies about 9-11 itself. So I went to Wikipedia and I looked it up and there have been tons of documentaries about 9-11. I remember a week after the attack, there was a documentary on CBS that was made by two French filmmakers because they were with a, uh, a fire company on the day of the attack. They were doing a documentary about the fire company and then the attacks occurred and they followed the fire company as they went to the world trade center. And I think they, they had that movie out and on CBS a week after the attack or maybe even less than a week after the attack. And I remember watching that live and there were tons of documentaries either about the attack itself or things that happened on the day of the attack, all kinds of little niche films about civilians who were affected by the attacks, a lot of a lot of films about the first responders, but they were all documentaries. When you go to fictional films, dramatizations, dramas, there are certainly no comedies. Very slim pickings. And some of some of them I had never I'd never heard of. Evidently a couple of years ago there was a movie simply called 9-11. Starring uh, Charlie Sheen and Whoopi Goldberg about a group of people that are trapped in an elevator in the World Trade Center during the attack. And I read the Wikipedia entry and I'm kind of like, why did this, these people are trapped in an elevator, why on 9-11? It seemed like the... Granted, I've not seen the movie and I have no desire to see the movie because it's got Charlie Sheen and Whoopi Goldberg in it. But I, it seemed like the, using 9-11 as the, the circumstance for this, these events seems like an, an attention grab. Then there was a movie from 2006 called The 9-11 Commission Report, evidently produced by The Asylum, which is a, a low-budget production company. And low budget is, in this case, low budget's probably a euphemism for not very good. I didn't know that movie existed. There's uh, DC 9-11, A Time of Crisis, a 2003 American-made for television movie on the Showtime cable channel, reenacting the, the events of 9-11 from the point of view of President George W. Bush. Never heard of that one. There was Flight 93, a 2006 American-made-for-television movie on the A&E Network about the United 93. I remember that movie came out because I think that came out the same year as it did. It did come out the same year as United 93, the Paul Greengrass film. There was Rudy, the Rudy Giuliani story, a 2003 American-made-for-television movie on the USA Network. It revolves around Rudy Giuliani's response to the events of 9-11. Is there anybody that has fallen farther in the last 15 to 20 years than Rudy Giuliani in American political life. 
anybody. There's Stairwell, Trapped in the World Trade Center, a 2002 American independent film about a group of people trapped in a sub-basement of the World Trade Center after after the two towers collapsed. Never heard of that movie. Um, of course, there is United 93. And then there's World Trade Center, the Oliver Stone movie with um, Nicolas Cage and um, Michael Pena, I think, who I think he's in Ant-Man, the Ant-Man movies. I think him and Nicolas Cage, they paid, played port authority officers who got trapped in the rubble. I remember when they uh, when it was announced that Oliver Stone was going to do a, a movie about 9-11 and everybody just started to freak out because like, holy shit, the guy who does JFK, who even back then um, worshipped at the feet of Fidel Castro and thinks Vladimir Putin's a great guy and Lord knows what he thinks of Kim Jong-un. But, um, or, oh, and he, he thought very highly of Hugo Chavez. Oliver Stone's a communist, okay? He just is. He's a fascist and a communist. Well, maybe not a fascist, but he's a communist. He loves dictators. And I remember when it was said that he was going to do a movie about 9-11, you know, Oliver Stone had done JFK, um, Platoon, Wall Street, the Wall Street sequel, which nobody saw because it had Shia LaBeouf in it. Word of advice, if you want people to see your movie, don't put Shia LaBeouf in it. He's very obnoxious. See Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the first three Transformers movies, etc., but everybody was freaking out because like, oh, dear God, what's he going to do? Oliver Stone, surely to God, Oliver Stone's not going to piss all over 9-11 because he's pissed all over everything else. Did Oliver Stone do that movie W with Josh Brolin as George W. Bush? Was that Oliver Stone? I'll have to look that up later. Anyway, turned out Oliver Stone did the movie. He did the movie. It was about these two Port Authority officers who got trapped in the rubble. Uh, spoiler alert, they survived. And it was a very respectful movie well received not a lot of criticism it was um for oliver stone it was a safe dare i say normal film but that's the extent of the movie's dramatizations about 9-11 and i put it out there on facebook and i'm like why hasn't there been movies like this is it is it too complex of a story because there's a lot of things that happened that day it's not just the two towers it's the you know it's the attack on the pentagon it's united 93 and it's everything that happened after that you know america's reaction to those things shutting down all the airports stranding people everywhere landing planes and doing emergency landings and people going to canada being diverted to canada and all that kind of stuff w on air force one military fighter jets being scrambled possibly to have to shoot down passenger planes that type of thing is it because the it's such a whereas Pearl Harbor happens in one place and it's a very contained place it's in this one harbor on Oahu in Hawaii it's kind of isolated whereas the 9-11 attacks are much more expansive there's a lot of different things going on simultaneously in lots of different places with lots of different people so is it just too complex of a story to tell in a, in a film? Is it because it's, dare I say, is it's too soon? Is it because it's a more complicated story than Pearl Harbor? With the attack of Pearl Harbor, you get the United States ending, entering World War II and the United States winning World War II. There's an ending as a result of Pearl Harbor. There's, no, there's not been an ending as a result of 9-11. We're still... 18 years later, dealing with 
the ramifications of decisions made after 9-11. And those decisions, not all of those decisions were great decisions. And the aftermath of 9-11 is exceptionally more complicated and exceptionally murkier than the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. And that might have something to do with, I think that might have a lot to do with it as well. There's a lot of things that we did that we're not proud of. Now, granted, that's the same in World War II, but the purpose, our justifications, I don't want to say they're more virtuous, but they're more, they're more understandable. The things that we did in World War II are much, are more understandable given what we were up against than the things that we did after 9-11, given what we were up against at that time. And I just think that between our handling of Afghanistan, torturing, you know, violating Geneva Conventions, torturing prisoners, renditions, everything about Iraq, everything about Iraq, our failure to capture and kill bin Laden until 10 years after the attacks, the fact that 18 years later we're still in Afghanistan, the rise of ISIS. ISIS is in Afghanistan. In current events, the on-again, off-again negotiations with the Taliban by the Trump administration. It's much more complex. The aftermath of 9-11 is a much more complex and much, much murkier. It's not nearly as, not nearly as clean as the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. And it also could just be because it's such a big, complicated thing even on the day of, to try to get your hands wrapped around it, to write a screenplay, to keep it, even if you were to like keep it at, say, Godfather or Lord of the Rings type of running time, Lord of the Rings is a three and a half hour long movie. Um, if you try to keep it at that kind of running time, you might not still be able to make a movie. And you certainly couldn't do like Lord of the Rings and break it up into three parts. 9-11 part 1, 9-11 part 2, 9-11 part 3. Nobody's going to go see that. Nobody's going to go see sequels to 9-11. It was just one of those weird questions that popped into my head as I was thinking about 9-11. Okay, completely different topic now, sort of. I suppose there's some ways we could incorporate 9-11 into this, but I don't think I'm going to go there. I'm, I haven't thought about it, so. Absence of prior thought probably means absence of inclusion in discussion. But we're going to talk about, and we, the mouse in my pocket and I, are going to talk about virtue signaling. And I'd put this out on Twitter about a month ago. I can't even remember the tweet. But it was something condescending about virtue signaling. I wanted feedback from my Twitter followers, 1,400 of you, um, about virtue, sig virtue signaling. And when I say virtue signaling, I mean it in a very specific context. And I'm, I'll touch on that here in a moment. But I 
as I always tried to, as I always do in prep in doing, you know, a little bit of research ahead of these shows, I went to my source of sources, Wikipedia and typed in virtue signaling. And I got a variety of things that I had not thought about that are virtue signaling. We just don't think of them that way. My little narrow discussion kind of expanded a little bit and it, this turned in from my wanting to cover the topic changed from kind of ranting and being a little bitchy about it to being genuinely informative. This is one of those things where if we stop and think about it for a minute, virtue signaling takes on a whole variety of other connotations. Virtue signaling is the conspicuous expression of moral values. Academically, the phrase relates to signaling theory and describes a subset of social behaviors that could be used to signal virtue, especially piety among the religious. We'll get to that in a second. In recent years, the term has been more commonly used within groups to criticize those who are seen to value the expression of virtue over virtuous action. This is kind of in contrast to piety among the religious, which is more about action as opposed to expression. In evolutionary biology, signaling theory is a, th- is a body of theories as models examining animal communication. It is concerned with honest signals. For example, a peacock's tail is an honest signal of his fitness, since a less fit peacock would only be able to produce a less spectacular sail. Tail, excuse me. So animals virtue signal. You think about a mating dance or um, some kind of mating uh, uh, expression of virility. Um, you think about um, alpha males, lions, apes, chimps, any type of alpha male uh, rivalry in a in a given species of animal. That's virtue signaling. Is basically what it is. I'm bigger. I'm stronger. I'm better. Notice me. Religion addresses virtue signaling as a costly signal. Evolutionary biology signaling theory describes costly religious rituals such as circumcision, fasting, abstinence, snake handling, and trial by ordeal as virtue signaling. Signaling theorists observe that expressions of religious piety signal moral commitments. Costly signaling holds that recognition of virtue negates cost and thus combines moral policing with virtue signaling. So basically, you undergo these painful rituals. Think of the, the albino in the Da Vinci Code, the guy who flogs himself all the time. The, the, the uber uh, pious Catholic who somehow is, a, somehow is able to reconcile killing, reconcile killing people at the same time. The guy who flogs himself all the time in that book and in the movie. I think the movie is played by Paul Bettany. Circumcision is a as a type of virtue signal, you know, it's a Jewish, it's a Jewish ritual originally fasting Muslims during Ramadan. They don't eat from sunup to sundown. It's a, it's a signal of virtue. It's virtue signaling, saving yourself until marriage. The, uh, the snake handlers in the Southern, um, in the Appalachian and Southern churches where they handle the poisonous snakes. And because if they're truly worthy and truly virtuous, God won't let the snake bite them. Uh, trial by ordeal. <laughs> Think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, the lady that the villagers bring to Sir uh, Sir Benavir, saying that she's a witch, and they uh, to to test that she's a witch, they ch- see if she makes weighs the same as a duck. 
because she weighs the same as a duck. She's made of wood and therefore a witch. That's virtue signaling. If she doesn't, if she weighs more than the duck or less than the duck, I guess she's not a witch. Another way to think about it would be um, the Buddhist monks in Vietnam in the 60s who um, set themselves on fire in public. The, the self-immolation, that's virtue signaling. And I'm sure there's a variety of other less extreme religious virtue signaling. Think of the various denominations, the, the factionalization of the major religions, Christianity, Islam, to a lesser extent, Judaism. Those subsects... Those uh, divisions, those uh, those sectarian, those sec- the sectarianism is virtue signaling. Lutherans saying they're better than Methodists, Anglicans saying better that they're better than Catholics. The Shiites are saying they're better than the Sunnis or the Houthis. Um, the the Orthodox, the ultra Orthodox Jews are better than the Orthodox Jews. Greek Orthodox is better than Russian Orthodox. That type of thing. This one I did not realize. We do this all the time. I just. I just did this multiple times in the last couple of months and didn't even realize I was doing it. But if you stop and think about it for half a second, it makes perfect sense. When you apply for a job, you are virtue signaling. When you send a resume out to a prospective employer, you're, you're virtue signaling. When you talk about yourself in any type of positive light in a job interview, you are virtue signaling. Potential employees signal ability by acquiring education credentials. The principal thus believes the agent's credentials signal greater ability. The other way we virtue signal is through aesthetics. Rich people buy these big mansions. Why? The you know does a rich person of does a rich person with a family of four need a six thousand square foot home? No. It's a status symbol. Status symbols are virtue signaling. Um, Odell Beckham Jr. wore last week in the first game of the regular season, wore a $250,000 watch during the game. He's playing football where he's going to get tackled and hit and knocked to the ground. And he's wearing a $250,000 watch. It's virtue signaling. Look at me. I'm rich. I'm rich. I'm flamboyant, for lack of a better word. I'm, I don't give a shit. Money means nothing to me because I'm okay with destroying a $250,000 watch or risking destroying a $250,000 watch. Donald Trump virtue signals all the time when he talks about his wealth and the size of his crowds and his and how he's making America great again. That's all virtue signaling. Politicians virtue signal 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which leads me to virtue signaling as a pejorative term. Virtue signaling is also used as a pejorative term, denouncing empty acts of public commitment to unexceptional good causes, such as changing Facebook profile pictures to support a cause, participating in the Ice Bucket Challenge for ALS, offering thoughts and prayers after a tragedy, celebrity speeches during award shows, and politicians pandering to constituents on ideological issues. All of that is virtue signaling. You're not really doing anything beyond an expression of solidarity, but you're not really doing anything. Okay. You do the ice bucket challenge to say you support funding and research to fight ALS. You're not actually fighting ALS. I can remember, and I've done this a couple times myself where I've put those colored banners over my profile picture 
I think the one that immediately comes to mind is I had a rainbow picture over a picture of Darth Vader because Darth Vader was my profile picture. This would be Darth Vader from Return of the Jedi as my profile picture. And then I put the rainbow thing over it temporarily. It's virtue signaling. My employer, my previous employer, there were um, these magnets or these stickers that you could get. Um, rainbow magnets or stickers that said the word ally on them. And they were for people who uh, supported LGBT, LGBTQ, say that five times fast, LGBTQ rights who were not themselves LGBTQ. Because if you're LGBTQ, you're not an ally, you're a soldier in the fight, okay? For lack of a better metaphor. But if you're a straight white male, like moi, all you can hope to be is an ally. So, you know, you could get stickers or magnets that said that. That's virtue signaling. You're not really doing anything. You're just virtue signaling. The various political posts that I share on my Facebook feed is virtue signaling on my part. But I'm not really doing anything. When a celebrity, who was it? Was it last year? Was it Meryl Streep last year? Was it at the Oscars or the Golden Globes or something like that? Meryl Streep gave a speech. She got an award for something. And she gave a speech and she just went after... Trump real bad and it was pretentious and stuff like that and it was obnoxious and it was virtue signaling is what it was every time there's a mass shooting and somebody you have all these politicians usually Republicans saying our thoughts and prayers are with the families in this and this uh, in this time of terrible tragedy as if that's their they have no intentions of doing anything about this issue but the thoughts and prayers are there because that's the that's the most that they're going to do. So in their minds, especially if they're of the religious sort, and most Republicans are of a religious sort, they think that actual prayer actually does accomplish something. So in their minds, they think they are actually doing something. But it is still just virtue signaling. The term virtue signaling in its modern context was popularized by James Bartholomew in an article in The Spectator which I believe is a British publication, on April 18th, 2015, to mean, quote, public empty gestures intended to convey socially approved attitudes without any associated risk or sacrifice, unquote. That's the key part. It's virtue without any cost. There's no risk. You're not doing anything to endanger yourself. You're not putting forth any sacrifice. It's not like you're giving away three quarters of, or all of your money to, uh, to uh, gun control advocacy, or you're giving away all your money to go do missionary work with cam cannibals and on an Island off the coast of Brazil that nobody's gone to in 50,000 years because it's full of cannibals. And of course there was a guy who did that and he ended up dead, but it's not like you're doing that. Lexic lex lexicographer, and I'm assuming that's a person who deals in lexicons, Orrin Hargraves says that the term stems from social media, which removes barriers to broadcasting sentiments. Hargrave links the term to the quote shaming quote, unquote category of neologisms. Neologisms, say that five times fast, such as prayer shaming, which can have an opposite meaning to virtue signaling. Merriam-Webster editor Emily Brewster described it as an academic-sounding counterpart to humblebrag, term coined by Harris Whittles in 2010. So you don't want to do humblebrag, you do virtual signaling instead because it sounds more intellectual. 
Signaling virtues such as environmental responsibility has been associated with economic decisions of consumers, such as buying green products and other forms of conspicuous conservation. The banning of plastic bags, virtue signaling. The banning of straws, virtue signaling. People that go, vegans and vegetarians, who all they do is post about it on social media, they're virtue signaling. People who support the Green New Deal, virtue signaling. People who want Medicare for all, virtue signaling. People who want tax cuts, virtue signaling. Jane Coaston, who I follow on Twitter, of the New York Times, although I don't think she said the New York Times anymore, notes that in using the term virtue signaling, one is, quote, trying to signal something about their own values, that they are pragmatic, appropriately cynical, in touch with the painful facts of everyday life, unquote. In The Guardian, a British publication, and I'm going to butcher this man's name, David Sharia Madari argues that, it, that this makes it, quote, indistinguishable from the thing it was designed to call out, unquote, adding that it is smug, quote, smug posturing from a position of self-appointed authority, unquote. In other words, when you criticize virtue signaling, you are virtue signaling. And he's exactly right. When you call out someone for virtue signaling, you yourself are virtue signaling. Neoliberal political theorist and economist Sam Bowman criticized the term, claiming that, quote, saying virtually virtual signaling is hypocritical, that, quote, saying virtue signaling is hypocritical. It's often used to try to show that the accuser is above virtue signaling and that their own arguments really are sincere, unquote. Yeah, there's no way to get around that. There's, no matter how virtuous your argument is or how sincere your argument is in going after virtue signaling, you're still virtue signaling. Adam Smith Institute Executive Director Sam Bowman opined that the meaning of the term, popularized by James Bartholomew, misuses the concept of signaling and encourages lazy thinking. In The Guardian, Zoe Williams suggested the phrase was the, quote, sequel insult to champagne socialist, unquote while fe fellow Guardian writer David Shariata Madari says that while the term serves a purpose, its overuse as an ad hominem attack during political debate has rendered it a meaningless political buzzword. Evidently, there's an antonym to virtue signaling, vice signaling, which has emerged to refer to blatant amorality. I see that probably being used among the religious right quite a bit. What I particularly loved is the... Um, on the Wikipedia page, the ancillary topics at the end, the the see also section, for lack of a better term. I love these. Uh, I didn't go to them and I should have. The ancillary topics that you can look up or review as well were armchair revolutionary, armchair warrior, call out culture, concern troll, dog whistle politics, hypocrisy, moral superiority, political correctness, the race card, self-licensing, I don't know what that is, self-righteousness, shy Tory factor, that sounds British, slacktivism, social, social desirability bias, social justice warrior, tribalism, and the watching eye effect. All right, I might have to check out a couple of those. The shy Tory factor and the watching eye effect has me intrigued. I just want to know what those are, what they're about. So is the self-licensing. I'm not sure about that one. In other words, virtue signaling is making a statement because you reckon it will garner approval rather than because you actually believe it. It's a form of vanity, all the worse because it's dressed up as social conviction. This is from David Sharia de Madari in The Guardian from June... No, 
I'm sorry, January 20th, 2016. The title of the article is Virtue Signaling, the put-down that has passed its sell-by date. So that, this article came out three years ago. You can tell I'm on top of it. Sharia Madari goes on to say, In informal political discussions, that is to say, down the pub, across the internet, and on talk shows, the phrase serves two functions. To make your opponent look shallow, while at the same time, in parentheses, the irony, signaling your initiation into a more sophisticated level of discourse. What started off as a clever way to win arguments has become a lazy put-down. It's too often used to cast aspersions on opponents as an alternative for rebutting their arguments. It's becoming, in fact, excuse me, in fact, it's becoming indistinguishable from the thing it was designed to call out, smug posturing from a position of self-appointed authority. Unquote. You criticize virtue signaling, you're virtue signaling. Just no way around it. So what has what is commonly used as an, as a pejorative term actually has a variety of contexts and connotations in our day-to-day living, in our everyday lives, in ways that we've probably never thought of it that way. Anytime you seek recognition for something you've done, you're virtue signaling. Every time you post on social media something funny or cute or smart or clever that your kid did, you're virtue signaling. Even when you're saying something bad about yourself, you might be virtue signaling. You're basically saying, I'm not perfect. As a virtue, I'm flawed. As a virtue, I have faults. As a virtue, I'm not saying you're doing that every time, but in a lot of cases, you may do. That may be what you're doing. It all depends on the context and the circumstances um, in which you're expressing yourself. But I found it very interesting. It was just one of those. It was one of those topics where I intended to go into it, addressing the pejorative term which we, I did cover. I'm sure if I had Googled this a lot more, there would have been a, so much more stuff I could have uh, gone into, but I, I think it would have been a, a very much an Alice through the looking glass going down the rabbit hole type of thing where you could get, you know, once you, pass, once you go past the event horizon of that supermassive black hole, you're never coming back. And then it doesn't turn into as much an episode of the podcast as, if, uh, as opposed to becoming an entire podcast in and of itself. Well, this episode turned out to be a little bit shorter than I'm normally used to doing. That'll make editing so much easier. If you have comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns about anything talked about in this episode, from the lack of nine movies about 9-11 to my affinity for Star Trek The Motion Picture to my affinity to of my, uh, you know, occasional affinity for Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I didn't even go into my rapidly growing crush on Brie Larson who had absolutely nothing to do with any of the movies that I saw this weekend but I just thought I'd put that out there I think my wife and I might need to have a conversation about her if you have any comments, questions, criticisms or concerns about anything touched on in this episode or anything that's been touched on in previous episodes you know, you want to rebut my economic arguments from episode 15 or if you want to talk about incels by the way on the incel front strongly recommend that you check out the incel project podcast Um, i believe if you look for it on itunes i think you just have to type in incel and it'll probably pop right up it's an independent podcast it's not really affiliated with any media the host of the show has pretty pretty much did all of her own research on this. She's the host. She's done. She did all the interviews. She's done all the research. She really got immersed in it. 
and I've only listened to the first couple of episodes. I'm about three or four episodes behind. So far, I've been very impressed, and she comes at it from a very open-minded perspective, at least so far, and really trying to, really is trying very hard to get her hands wrapped around this microculture, if you will. So I recommend that. Uh, she calls it the Incel Project, but I think if you just type in Incel, you should be able to find it. She's, I think she just put out episode six this week. If you have any comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns, as I say that for the fifth time in the last two minutes, let me know. The email address is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. Send me a DM on Twitter at IHaveSoManyPod or just look up I Have So Many Questions Podcast and the search function of your Twitter app. Facebook.com forward slash I Have So Many Questions Podcast. While you're at iTunes or on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Give me a little feedback or, you know, just pick a handful of stars. Your options are zero to five. Let me know what you think of the show. I don't care what, you know, what you really say. My fragile male ego is not that fragile. And I'm pretty sure that anything you do say about the show to me is probably nothing compared to the things that I've been told by my wife and children. And that had nothing to do with the podcast. But I still want to know what you think. The show is hosted on Anchor.fm and through their mobile app. This has been I Have So Many Questions. I have been he who is B, your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time and for your patronage. Be sure to listen to the show through PodCoin, uh, where you can get paid for listening to podcasts, as I have recently been doing. The show is on there, and you get bonus points for the show. This has been I Have So Many Questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you. Good night, Cleveland. is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using audio from 911 calls, interrogations, trial testimony and interviews, Morbidology takes a look at some of the most mysterious and disturbing crimes from all across the world. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. From shocking murders to missing children, we focus on a variety of cases and put you, the listener, right into the middle of the investigation. Listen to Morbidology now on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean and wherever else you get your podcasts.